So we are now online. Welcome once more to everybody in the room and everybody who, who is online. We are studying, of course, to do the Thessalonians, and we are studying chapter 4 uh, today. But uh, before we do anything else, let's uh, uh, open with... Father, we thank you for your love and mercy towards us, your uh, great... Great uh, love in giving us the gifts of this life, and particularly the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word, through which we come to know your will and your love even better. As we pray that as, as we study, you would instruct us, you would guide us, you'd amend our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit, where amendment is needed, and above all, give us a firm hope and comfort in the knowledge of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, a uh, quick summary uh, of what we have learned so far. So, Paul uh, and Silas and Timothy founded a church in Thessalonica. Uh, they were uh, run out of town very quickly. Soon after that, uh, they, didn't, they only stayed there for a matter of possibly weeks, maybe a, a month or two, not very long. Long enough that there was a church, there was a community there, um, and um, all then uh, travelled on to Berea from where they were also driven out uh, after a while from there he went to Athens from Athens he sent Timothy uh, back to visit the Thessalonian Christians when Timothy returns Paul is now in Corinth and he's writing a letter to Corinth to these Christians and he's writing to them because he was he left so uh, quickly that he did not give the had the opportunity to give them a, like a full course of instruction in the Christian faith. So he's supplementing what is missing, uh, uh, what was missing from his instruction earlier. At the same time, he's addressing them as Christians who are already su- suffering uh, some form of persecution, or at least uh, 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 some kind of at, at least are under pressure as Christians from uh, the synagogue. Um, so he's strengthening them. <coughs> excuse me, uh, in faith through that. Already he's having to defend him and his fellow ministers in Christ because, from accusations because, of course, he's kind of really having to leave suddenly, coming, breezing in, and then leaving again made them look bad uh, in the eyes of some, made them look like those charlatans who are there for, you know, kind of fair-weather sailors who, who as soon as the going gets tough, uh, take off, so he's defending his ministry. But all along, throughout, we, the 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 general tone of the letter is very warm. He's clearly got a very, he's very, very fond of these Christians and he, and he trusts them also in their affection towards him and his, and, and his fellow, uh, workers. And, uh, most recently in, uh, chapter three, um, he's, um, he encourages them in particular, uh, with regard to the, uh, persecution. So the, the third chapter is, is particularly uh, about uh, his uh, is a, a chapter that deals with encouragement. He's encouraged by hearing about the love and their faith, and he wants to encourage them by uh, saying it aloud. You see, it reminds me a little bit of I'm a, I, you know how I like to repeat the same stories again and again. Uh, whether I like to, I do <laughs> do it anyway. But uh, the, the, there's the old old Finnish a Finnish joke that Finns tell about the kind of typical fin, unexpressive Finnish man. Uh, wife asks him after 30 years of marriage, do you still love me? 
Mm. And his reply is, well, I told you 30 years ago, and I'll let you know if I change my mind. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the important, how important it is, not only that we, we kind of, we know what each other is thinking and feeling, but actually with that we tell each other. It is very important to hear from the outside, um, so that I'm not left guessing. And hearing words, hearing things, hearing encouragement, even if you kind of know it, um, makes a difference. You know, if you, I don't know, you, you do something, I don't know, you, 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 you sing or you play or you dance or you, you do something and you think you went well, but if somebody then says to you, that was really good, that changes the situation. You know, it, you are confirmed in that. It's okay, I think it went well. Someone says, you did really well. So, okay, so it was good. And, and that brings us encouragement. And what Paul does here is psychologically as well as spiritually very important. He tells the Thessalonians what he's thinking so that they know they are encouraged by the knowledge that they, that their life genuinely is a blessing to others. Sometimes we can be a little bit, um, because uh, Christians rightly prize humility and modesty, uh, sometimes we can be perhaps a little bit too careful of other people's modesty and fail, fail to dis- encourage them. And it's really important that we do do that. So if somebody does something to help you, or to some, or does something that you think is commendable, to tell them that this is actually an encouragement. It doesn't have to be, you know, it, does, it doesn't have to lead to boasting. Um, since, you know, everybody's modesty is their own business. And yet you're not very happy when we say thank you for the sermon that you've just given us. Uh, that's God's word. I know it's different because it's, it's different. God's words yes. that you're telling us, but there are ways of delivering it, and there are ways of delivering it. Yes. So well, I, I don't that. object if you say I was encouraged by or, right. or something like that, but I, I don't want you to uh, ultimately thank me for God's gift. That's what I'm saying. No. But if it isn't, you know, if, if you're encouraged, yes, if you're encouraged by something, it's good to say. But that's where we've got to so far. And, and, and the, that end of that third chapter is kind of the end of that particular section. Now start something new. Chapter four really has, um, has two, two parts to it. The first 12 verses are, do one thing. And then from verse 13 onwards, running into chapter five is something else. So we, we're going to uh, read the first 12 verses first and discuss those, and then we will move into uh, into the second half of verse 13, but there's a complete change of subject at verse 13. Um, and that's the, in a sense, the verse 13 is the, is the beginning of something new. It's, the, it's, the, it's that bit that he talked about at the very beginning that he wants to uh, uh, complete what is lacking. In other words, that's the new teaching. There's new teaching... And everything up to verse 12 in chapter 4, in essence, is things that they already know, but he wants to strengthen courage them. So let's le- uh, read, um, let's, see, let's go in two parts. So if somebody could please read the first eight verses, and then from 9 to 12, somebody else. I don't mind starting. Thank you. <laughs> you do what I mean. Thank you. Uh, wait, isn't it? Finally, brethren, we beseech and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, you knew, you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from unchastity, 
that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like heathen who do not know God, that no man transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we solemnly forewarned you. For God has not called us for uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love to you, have no need for anyone to write to you. For yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before the outsiders and be dependent on no one. Thank you. So there are a couple of different uh, areas there, uh, areas of um, instruction that Paul uh specific areas that Paul is addressing, what's the general theme of this? If you put it kind of, if you had like a heading for all of this, uh, don't look at what the heading that your Bible translation is given. How mm. would you, mm. uh, how would you, um, characterize? What is he dealing with? What's the subject matter? Well, he's trying, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Bob. Well, he's trying to get it into the people he's trying to tell. To do the right thing. What do you mean by do the right thing? Well, he's, he's telling them what they're not to do and what they should be doing. In regard, with regard to? Living. Living, correct, mm. yeah. So this is instruction by Christian living. And, and this is important, I think it's important for us to be always reminded of it. Um, I know that you all know this, but I'll, I'll remind you, Paul reminds them, that it's really important that while we, uh, while we maintain very clearly that our relationship to God our standing before God is something that is received by, through faith alone, is is a gift of God's grace, that always also has real-life consequences. So whenever we talk about Christian living, it's never talked in terms of, you know, we must never think in terms of our conduct or our behavior being somehow a condition of our acceptance by God, but rather it is a consequence and a fruit of our acceptance by God, that if we are God's and we belong to him, then our whole life belongs to him. And it belongs to him because of Christ, but now that it does belong to him, it really needs to belong to him. And that is to say, we are to live our lives uh, in a way, as he says there, which says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus um, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, and walk is, like, is, a, is, a, is a very common metaphor for way of life, how you live your lives, how you know the path that you take through life, how you walk and to please God. And we mustn't forget that to live our lives in accordance with God's will is God-pleasing. It pleases God when we do. Jesus talks about this very clearly in, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, when you fast, when you give alms, when you pray, he says, your father who sees the secret will reward you. Jesus' parables about the time, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
likewise in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus will says that we will be commended by God for doing his will. And it's not about uh, getting full marks and therefore getting a commendation. It's not a matter, you know, it's not something that we need to measure. So as long as it's perfect, it counts. And if it's not perfect, it doesn't count. No, it's that our lives are ordered by God's word rather than by the opposite, which is everything else is opposite, which is our will, the will of the world. And, and so it is, we are guided by the truth and not by lies. And it's not, as I said, it's not a matter of counting your beans or, or your brownie points. What percentage of insincerity or perfection you manage to achieve, it's rather about the general conduct of your life. Not keep God's law perfectly, especially in our hearts, but we can order our lives according to God's command. And either be obedient citizens or disobedient citizens. We can either protect one another's bodily integrity or we can be harmful to one another's bodily integrity. We can be faithful or unfaithful in our marriages. We can either be honest or dishonest in our dealings. We can either be truthful in our speech or, 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 or deceptive in our speech. These things we actually have choice over. We don't have choice over our sinful desires, but we have choice over what we actually say and do. And God is calling, he said, you know, I, he said, we, we instruct, urge, ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk. And Paul had been in there for not very long and he had been instructing them on how to live. It's, it's a really central and kind of core part of Christian instruction. We're not just saved from the punishment of sin. We actually, we actually been called away from a life of sin. And the Holy Spirit, the gift of God in there is that the Holy Spirit gives us a new, a uh, new mind, a new will, and and better knowledge of what is good and, and what is true. And so he said, you 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 receive how you walk with please God, just as you are doing, um, <clears throat> and is that you do so more and more. In other words, this is not something that you, it's not an on-off thing. You either you do it completely or you don't do it at all. Something you pursue and something in which we can grow. Think of it like getting better at the, you know, any, anything that we do, you know, painting, or dancing, or playing music, or writing poetry, or whatever, is that, you know, <laughs> there is no such thing as perfection, but there is such a thing as progress, or improvement. Learn with practice. Always urging them to put it into practice and do so more and more. give us our trespasses also. Yes, yes. This is, as you say, try and do it, and then the next thing is, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, but that's the whole point of it, more and more. Mm -hmm. As as I said already, we're not trying to, it's not a kind of either you do it perfectly or you don't do it at all. Mm -hmm. You're not doing it in order to gain a mark or or a grade, but rather you're growing more and more into that person which God has already in Christ made you. So there is a, what you are in, in Christ is a, is a saint, a holy person who's just and righteous before God. What you are in your daily conduct is a person who's a mixed bag with all sorts of other desires at work as well. And so there's a discrepancy between your status and <laughs> your, and your conduct and what Paul is saying that as Christians, we are to work towards closing that discrepancy more and more. And 
we can do that with a good conscience. So it's, it's a, I remember reading this article I read uh, many years ago by an American Lutheran layman. He's a, he's a journalist. So he writes very well. And, uh, and he wrote an article about the, th- um, really it was a story of his, his Christian experience, how he, he grew up in the Lutheran church. And he grew, as he, as he was growing, uh, as a late teenage and early adulthood, he grew more and more dissatisfied in that Lutheran church because he felt that the, 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 the spiritual diet that was being given when you went to church was always the same. You went to church on a Sunday and you were told you are a sinner deserving, you know, damnation and, and death from God, but Jesus died for your sins. You are forgiven. Go home in peace. Then you came back the next Sunday and said, you're a sinner deserving. And it was the same message, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Mm-hmm. All he ever heard was, you're a sinner. And, and kind of said, after, after sort of growing up with this all his young life, said, so, well, I got this, I learned this pretty well. But there was nothing else. It was just this cycle, like you're just going around in a circle like a, like a hamster on a wheel. And then he discovered a, a Christian tradition, another uh, Protestant tradition, where they, Still held on to that, but then they said, but they also taught you what this means day, day after day. So, okay, so all of a sudden, to the, you know, I was a young man and they gave me something to aspire to. So there was more to my Christian life than just going around saying, so you're a sinner, Christ died for you. But actually that this has some meaning for my life, mm-hmm. content in my life. And so he left the Lutheran church and then after I discovered actually he really missed the sacraments. So he came back, but said, you know, and said, you know, we Lutherans, we can't just we can't just restrict the whole gospel preaching just to the one subject matter. And we can see Paul doesn't. Mm. He's right there at the heart. We, but we have to keep in mind that to the two topics. There's justification, our standing with God, which is based solely on what Christ has done. And then our sanctification, our Christian life, which grows out of that. And we, in which we, in which we actively pursue righteousness, not in order to gain some points or to, or to gain, gain a level of mastery, but rather in order to become more and more that thing that God has made us to be. Because in heaven we will be perfect. So why not pursue that perfection? Even when we know that there is no such thing as perfection in this life. There's greater and lesser expertise. But this, this is something they're aware of, and there are phrases I actually highlighted when I was preparing. He said, he says, just as you are doing, in verse 1. Verse 2 says, for you know. Mm-hmm. In verse 9 says, you have no need for anyone to write to you about these things. Verse 10, that indeed is what you are doing. Verse 11, as we instructed you. He's kind of, this is, this is stuff that we already taught you. This is a reminder mm-hmm. of what he's taught them. Well, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. The word instruction there, the original meaning is, it was actually a technical term for a command issued to soldiers by an officer. Like daily, daily, daily orders. Mm-hmm. So this is like, a, these are your marching orders today. And in many ways, I, I know, a, I know a, a friend of mine was in a church where the pastor, he didn't actually do this, but he, he said, uh, they taught his congregations that really, the congregation ought to stand through the whole sermon, because soldiers stand when they receive their marching orders. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't think the sermon is just marching orders, but in a sense, it is. Okay, right. This is this is the this is the route we're taking today. This is the way we ought to walk today to please God. So you know the instructions, and he said we gave you. He urged you in verse one. We urge you in the Lord Jesus. We gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
Some Bible translations translate that through the Lord Jesus, by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It wasn't us, but it was, it was him. We were channeling, channeling Jesus to you. Then he moves on to talk about warnings, things to avoid, verses 3 to 8. And here we're going to hit some really tricky translation problems, which I cannot solve for you because they're insoluble, but I think we ought to know about them. <coughs> this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, that is the will of God. Now, what is sanctification? What does that word even mean? It's your lifetime's going to be how you do your lifetime, how you live? Not, not, uh, that's not his primary, basically. It has implications for them, but that's not what it actually means. Being saved? Closer. What's that with sanctification, though? It has a very specific name, sanct. Sanctus. Saints, which means what? What's another word? What's the adjective? So saint is the noun. What's the adjective for it? What's the, you know, if somebody is a saint, they are, what kind of a person are they? Saintly. Justify. Well, no. Give me a different word. No, not justify. That's a different um, word group. Made right in the eyes of God. No, no that's justification. No, that's only, oh, right, okay. Oh. Holy. <laughs> I holy. The word holy. And I, I, I you said justification because I often I talk about this together. Mm. So righteousness and justification in every language except English are the one word. Mm. Except this. Except, no, except English. Oh, I see. English is the only language that splits the words righteousness and justification, just mm. and righteous, into two separate groups. Because English has Germanic words, this is mm. a Germanic language, <laughs> which has imported lots of Latin words from French. Yeah. So just and justification are French root kind of Norman words. Mm. Righteousness is a Germanic word, so it has its Anglo-Saxon roots. So you've got, and exactly the same with holiness and, and sanctification. So mm. holy is an Anglo-Saxon word. So German for holy is heilig. But saint, sanctify, sanctuary, those are mm. uh, Norman words, come mm. from the uh, Latin word sanctus, mm-hmm. uh, holy. And so when you ever see sanctification, sanctity, sacred, sac- sacral, sacred. any of those words, they all mean the same thing as holy. Now, what, what does sacred mean? That's sacred means holy. It's still the same word. Holy and sacred are exactly the same word, right. but sacred is, is a Norman word and holy is an Anglo-Saxon word. Ah. Right, so what does that mean, though? <laughs> so we now know that holy and sacred mean the same thing, but what do they both mean? It means to be something to be holy. Of God. Sorry? Of God. Yes. Let's develop that a little bit more. But we're of God. Yes. We're all of God. Yes. We're adopted by him. Adopted. But it's not to do... So holiness doesn't mean adoption. Adoption is adoption. Right. So Our brains are of God. No. And that what we think No, and brain do. is a bit of your body. All of you is. All of us. All of... In the whole of you is... is but what does holy mean? Like when you have, uh, well, God is holy. What does that mean? Doesn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Okay, so the perfection is, perfection is part of God's holiness, yes. Mm. But holiness doesn't mean perfection. That's a part. So God is 
in himself by nature is set apart from creation. He's creator, we are creatures. And we are, met, you know, we are, we are part of his creation and matter. He is God who is the maker of things. He's not part of the world. He is the maker of the world. He is the ruler of the world. He is judge of the world. So God is no more part of the universe than a potter is part of a pot. A composer is part of a piece of music. The two, one doesn't exist without the other, but they're not the same as each other. So you can say that the potter is set apart from the pot or from the vase because they're not, they're not the same. And God is holy, let's say God is entirely distinct from the world, he is apart from the world, he is, does not share the characteristics of the world, or the world shares some of God's characteristics. So things, the direction of travel is from God to the world, yes? Now, that's what God is. Now if something in the world is holy then, that means that it is set apart by all. And, uh, and the picture is very simple. Um, this is where I wish I brought my white whiteboard with me to draw a nice picture for you. But I want you just to, you have to just imagine this picture, but it's very simple. The world consists of entirely, uh, consists of two kinds of things. You take everything in the world and there, and you can put them into two pots. One's much bigger than the other. Those things which are common to all. And they just are part of the world and, you know, you can use them or, you could be one of them. And then there are those things that belong to God. That have been set apart, taken from the world, so can these are not for everybody's use, these are for God's use. So in, in, for example, in the church, <clears throat> we have all kinds of drinking vessels. Mm-hmm. We have mugs, we have some glasses, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, things like, and those are common, and you can drink, anybody can use them whenever they like, you can put water in them, you can put the coffee or tea in them, mm-hmm. if you, if you run out, you know, if you need something to put your, Turpentine in for your paintbrush, you can use one of those. And then we have a chalice. Now it's not holy in a biblical sense, it's not commanded in the scriptures that you must have this. But we treat it as a, as a sacred object. We only have it, it's for one use only. Mm-hmm. And we don't use it for anything else. And it's set apart for that particular use. We have sanctified it for use. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, to break that down, so let's take this. Now, of the common objects, in other words, things that are not holy, the, the uh, technical term is profane, or the, you know, these days we say profanity, we think of bad language, but originally profane means, just simply means not holy. Mm. Now of the profane things, of the common things, there are two kinds. There's a, there are things that are clean and things that are unclean, or pure and impure. It's nothing to do with hygiene or dirt, it's to do with whether it is in itself acceptable to God or not acceptable to of course, the Old Testament law is full of these things. You've got pork and you've got shellfish and you've got uh, menstruation and all sorts of other things that render a person unclean. Death. Mm. You know, if somebody's dead, mm. their body becomes unclean. If you touch your body, you become unclean. Leprosy, all kinds of other things mm. that are unclean, ritually impure. And it simply means that if you are unclean, you cannot approach God. If you are unclean, you cannot present it to God as a gift. That's why we have Jesus. Yeah, that is correct. Now, but nevertheless, that is the case. There are still things that I unclean now. We'll come to those. If you want to sanctify something or someone, it first has to be cleansed. Impure things cannot be come into contact with God or they're destroyed. And so, for example, but, you know, if, um, you know, there are, there are certain things which were burnt up 
outside the camp as Anki. God and you destroy them. Then there are things, and so, but if, if a clean thing is brought in contact with God, it becomes holy. The unclean things are destroyed, clean things are sanctified. And so when it says in 1 Corinthians 6, that neither sexually immoral nor adulterers nor etc. etc. will inherit the kingdom of God, that's because those things render you unclean or impure. You are soiled with sin. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were justified, they sanctified, you were justified. You were washed, holy baptism, that is now you're clean. You were sanctified, you were made holy, and you were justified, you were acceptable. So that's all happening at once in baptism. It's not like this thing and the nothing and the thing, but these three things, but that's the logical order. You are clean, therefore you can now be presented to God because you're no longer unclean, and therefore when you're presented to God, you become holy, you're sanctified, and you're justified. Now this is the will of God, your sanctification. God wants you to be holy. Throughout the book of Leviticus, there's this refrain that gets repeated again and again, be holy as I am holy. And I always, you know, I wonder, is that a command or is that a statement? You shall be holy. That could be just a, this is what will be the case. Or it could be a command, you shall be holy or else. Which is it? I think Jesus is the one, isn't he? Yeah, we'll come yeah. to that. But when we talk about Jesus now, we'll talk about you. So when God, when God... When God says to Israel, he says, we're not even talking about you, we're talking about Israel. When God says to Israel, you shall be holy as I am holy, is he commanding them or is he informing them? And you said he's informing them. I think them. he's informing I would have to interpret it. Okay, yeah. anybody have a different view? Repentance all the time. We're not talking about that now. We're just, we're just asking, what does the sentence mean? Does it mean that you must be so or you will be so? It has to it have a caveat. Thank you. It is both. It is both. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. It is something that is required, but it's also something that is promised. And this is particularly, and this is where we do get to Jesus, the gospel delivers both that which it demands. You must be clean of your sins. Here's cleansing for your sins. So that's what the gospel does. Now, but there, but as we know, we sin daily. Much and much. That is to say, we constantly make ourselves unclean by our Therefore, we need to be purified. So there's that discrepancy I talked about before. This is what you ought to be. This is the holy, perfect, righteous person, of which currently there exists one perfect specimen, that's Jesus. And then there's me, who has been made one with Christ. So in God's eyes, I'm holy and righteous. God has cleansed me from my sins, and he has made me his own. That is to say, I'm now holy. And that's why every Christian is a saint. I understand what, you know, we call some people saints, St. Saint Paul, St. Peter, and you know, all these saints. But strictly speaking, biblically speaking, we are all saints. Either you're a saint or you're damned. There's only options. Because if you belong to God, you're holy. He set apart you for himself. And we are part of God's holy people. Now, there is this discrepancy where what we are in, by God's declaration, we have not yet become in actuality in the actual, you know, the, the, the reality of our daily lives. And what God wants is for that gap to be bridged. And how's that? Sorry, I'm, I'm lost on that. So, what is it? 
that you were just saying. That in, in Christ I am holy. Yes. Because I have been sanctified by, I have been yes. co-opted by God, has mm-hmm. set me apart from the whole of the rest of the world mm-hmm. for himself. I belong to him and therefore I'm holy. Yes. Mm-hmm. But if you look at me and said, what is my life actually like? It is not entirely holy. It's not entirely unholy, but it's not entirely holy. But Jesus makes us holy. Yes, but those are two different things. Mm-hmm. Jesus makes us holy in the center, in two different ways. One is our status, and the other one is our actual, actual existence, the way that we, we, we live. And those both matter. Sorry. Yeah, yeah well, we're coming to that. I'm just saying, all I'm saying is that that's the reality. Yeah? I'm deliberately walking slow because I don't want to skip any steps. I don't want to go to, we sense we're saying, well, I want to understand how it works. That's what we do, because that's what Paul is talking about. How does it work? What does it mean for us to be sanctified, given that we already are holy? It means the same thing as if you become, if, if you, let's say that your father is a carpenter and you're your father's son and you go into your father's carpentry business, you become an apprentice to your father, you already are a carpenter because you have been made part of the business. That doesn't mean though, either you don't have to train anymore, you don't have to get any better, you're constantly learning. And the more that you learn, the more you will also know what more you have left to learn. If you become a professional musician, you don't stop practicing. Now you know what the aims are. You know, you can always play better. You can always find something new. Mm. If you're an artist, you don't stop drawing sketches and practicing your techniques. No, you begin to improve on them. Mm. And in the same way, as Christians, God's will is our sanctification. That is to say that our lives are... Be, that our lives should be brought more and more and more into line with what we are. That we learn to act as those which we are. So in Christ we are holy. So now we are, you shall be holy. So be holy in your conduct. But we can't. We, we can. We can't perfectly, but it doesn't mean we can't at all. You can't always say everything that is right, but it doesn't mean that you, everything that comes out of your mouth is a lie or malicious. Perfection, there's an old saying which says, don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. Just because you can't do something perfectly doesn't mean that you can't, you shouldn't do tree even try. Rather, and in the same, that's true of the Christian life. God's will is our sanctification. And now he doesn't just say that in abstract, he says it's in specific. And he gives us two examples, I think, all the, the translation issues are tricky. So verse three, what does that mean in, ra- in pre- reality? That, you abstain from sexual immorality. So this is verse 3. You abstain from sexual immorality because sexual immorality is impurity. And it is clearly prohibited in the law of God and it is clearly something that is contrary to the will of God and is an act of uh, also sin against the neighbour. Sexual immorality, as Paul writes to the Corinthians a little bit later, a couple of years later, is a sin where you sin against your own body. It's not outside you, it's actually in you. And so we are to abstain from sexual immorality. And he's not here talking about keep, just keeping your thoughts pure, but actually just how you behave yourselves. And you must remember that the first century Greek-speaking uh, world into which Paul is writing is not that dissimilar from other world in which we live, where sexual immorality is considered to be normal and not immoral at all. Especially uh, the post 60s, 
post-sexual revolution world. You know, the kind of world into which most of you were born doesn't exist anymore. The world in which I was born is a completely different world. There's one generation gap, and so much happened in that gap, which is the 1960s and 70s, where, with all kinds of things coming into place, the decline of Christianity, the introduction of, of the contraceptive pill, all sorts of other things that meant that sexual immorality is now considered to be completely normal. So that if you say, like some young people might want to say, for example, that, uh, that you know, we will abstain from sexual relations, sexual intercourse, until we are married, and everybody looks at them like they're just landed <laughs> from, the, Mar- from yeah. the moon or from Mars. It's <laughs> like, who does that? Mm. I remember when Sarah and I were, um, uh, you know, we, we, before we were, in, we were just uh, dating, courting, and uh, we went on a, um, a, a short uh, boat, uh, boat holiday uh, together just for a couple of nights and afterwards had to then field all sorts of questions from uh, from friends and relations about what happened on there. I said, well, we had a lovely time and nothing else happened, you know, at night we mm-hmm. slept and during the day we sailed. Like, Did you sleep together? <laughs> Very difficult, you know. Mm-hmm. Here's your bed, here's my yeah, bed. You yeah. keep your clothes and I keep my clothes on. That yeah. was it. Very easy. It's, it's the old... Um, Government of Pakistan had this contraceptive poster in the 80s, which said, and a family planning poster said, the best form of contraception is a glass of water. (laughs) Not before or after, but instead. (laughs) And, you know, but it's become, you know, we live in this world where sexual immorality, not only, you know, uh, what uh, used to be called uh, fornication, so sex before marriage, or outside of marriage. It's normal but, now. But also all mm. kinds of other, other kind of sexual, uh, behavior, which was frankly sexual perversions, have been, become completely normalized. Mm. And that was very much the case in the first century world, with the added reality that there was slavery, it's a slave society, where slaves were the property of their owners, and, and the male owners of slaves could basically use their slaves any way they liked, and they did. Mm. Boys and girls and men and women and anything at all, and and it was rampant and it was mm. considered to be perfectly normal. Sodom and Gomorrah, God got rid of because of all that. That's got nothing. To, yeah, but that's <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. When we're not talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, we're talking about <laughs> the Roman Empire. Oh yes, yeah, but... yeah, we are. We are. This is this is a couple of thousand years later in a different place. Mm. So it, this this was. Perfectly normal, and there's some really, I mean, secular historians have written about this, about the, the, the really big, the biggest sexual revolution took place in the 60s, not the 1960s, but the original 60s, when Christianity began to be preached, and this sort of message all came to force. The sort of thing that you would say to a wife, which is that you must be faithful to your husband if you're not, terrible things happen to you, also applies to your husband. He too must be faithful. Like, what? <laughs> That people should not be used sexually. Say, what? But they're my slaves. No. <laughs> All I want, you know, the, the, it's, it's, it's really, it was completely radical. We'll take it for granted. Of course you shouldn't rape somebody just because they happen to be a slave in your household. And the Bible tells you why not, but the world actually can't tell you why. So a lot of modern, modern sexual ethics in our society is piggybacking on Christian assumptions. Mm. But without the Christian authority of it, it doesn't actually have any reason. Why shouldn't you? When people say, like, some 
even some bishops now in the Church of England have said that as long as two people are committed to one another and monogamous uh, in a loving relationship, then that's absolutely fine, mm-hmm. even if they're the same sex. Well, first of all, why why should you why monogamous? What if there's three of them? What stop from two becoming three? And why does this faithfulness bit matter so much? I mean, as long as it's loving. I mean, it, what what if they both agree lovingly to let each other to be to be uh, um, promiscuous? Mm. Why not? Give me one reason why not. <laughs> well, I can give you lots of reasons why not, but those answers, those those reasons, actually rely on <coughs> not just that the Bible says so, but the whole world that the Bible presents to us of God being the creator and the loving father of all, and therefore our nature being somehow, uh, uh, our nature giving us a, a certain, you know, restrictions on what we can or should or shouldn't do. So the certain things are contrary to nature, however normal they feel. So that's, that's why he talks about sexual immorality. The slaves, though, yeah. you can see this is where they used to use the slaves. I'm not saying it's right, mm. but, you know, if you've got a slave, you you can do anything with them. That's exactly mm. what I said, yes. Yeah. Yes, and now Paul is saying, no, you can't. You abstain from sexual immorality, and that word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, which gives a pornography, which is, mm. pornography means the depiction of, or pictures of, immorality, sexual immorality. And that word covers everything except chaste sexual relations within marriage. So whether it's sex before marriage, or it's adultery, or is, or is it's uh, homosexual relations, or bestiality, or or paedophilia, or anything else, except uh, chaste sexual relations within marriage. So, for example, the thing that has only become le- recognised in law quite recently in, in the last few decades, rape within marriage, which you know used to be used to be common and still exists, and is, is a ter- that is sexual immorality, because that is not what God gave us. That's not acting in purity. That's no, that is not what, what sexual relations were given for. That's an exercise of power and violence by one against the other. People now live together and never get married. Yeah, and that's sexual immorality. Or wait until they get their children so they can be bridesmaids and grooms. Yeah. Um, but, um, in Australia, um, when Australia was in Sultau, they were sending Everybody over there who were bad. Oh, criminals, yeah. Well, that's a while ago. Well, that's right. But, I mean, I was around when this all happened as well. Um, uh, eventually, of course, it all came down. And well, My sister-in-law, my sister um, lives there now and things mm-hmm. like that. But if you they did, um, uh, they just sent them out there. And they, they kind of, whatever they had, they had it. And this is... From people I knew that went, mm. it's not that they wanted to go, that they yeah, they'd done something bad. Yeah. And they, that's kind of you know you must have remembered a lot of that as well when they. Well, I went there in 1939. Right. But, uh, I don't remember as a boy there was any but for picking pockets. Immorality. No, yeah. but there was only six. Together, aren't we? Mm. That actually, that this is wrong. Mm. Sorry. Yeah. But see, so what does this, why does he, why does he lead with that? Well, first of all, that was rampant. 
and I think it's rampant again in our day, and I think we do mm. well to lead with that. The same in Greece, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, mm. and this is in Ma- this is in Macedonia, so mm. Rome, Greece, all that, the whole world. Uh, but also, um, the the other reason, of course, is that sexual immorality, as, as I said earlier, and, and as, as Scripture says, is a sin that is committed very much bodily, in the body, uh, and, and it's a sin both against another person, but against your own body, and therefore against your Creator. Who's giving you that body? And therefore, it's it's a kind of in in that sense, it's an ascetic. It's 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 a more fundamental uh, um, sin against the sanctity, holiness of you as a person than almost anything, because your whole body, which is the created in the image of God, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You take that, which is God's. And you use it for something that's contrary to God's will. And therefore sanctification begins in that sense with chastity. Because you're, you're acknowledging this body of mine, whatever desires I feel, is actually something that belongs to God now and it must be used as a vessel that belongs to Him and to be used according to His instructions and His will, because it's not just mine, it's now being given over to Him. Then it gets Tricky, because verse 4 is the first translation issue. So ESV says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour. What did yours say, verse Uh, 4? It said that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honour. Ah, no. I said, each one of you know how to control his own body, and you said, each one of you... (laughs) Um, Oh, um, each one of you know how to take a wife for himself. That sounds a bit different, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One says yeah. that you control mm. your body, the other one yeah. says take a wife. Yeah. Mm. No, that's a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah. So which is the right translation? Well, the, the right translation, if there is no such thing as the right translation, but the literal translation is that each of you uh, take hold of or possess or, or gain or acquire um, his own vessel or container to control your own body but that's not what the so the Greek says take hold of your own Mm. vessel or container why are some people born as homosexuals I don't know and nobody knows no I mean it's not right but why are some people born for example with uh uh, you know, sociopathic, you know, like there's, a, I, I know a child at a, at a local school, he, he's literally a sociopath. He does not understand mm. the impact mm. of his behaviour on others. Mm. Why are Some people are. Mm. There are all sorts of things. But before we get to the, this, this translation <laughs> issue is that it's, it says here, each of you take his, uh, t- take hold of his own vessel mm. or container in holiness and honour and nobody can be sure of what it means because that word vessel is used in the Bible in different ways. It's obviously a metaphor rather than a literal expression. It doesn't mean that you take hold of a jar or a, or a bucket yeah. or something, although it could be. It could even refer to tools and all kinds of things. Um, in 2 Corinthians verse four, uh, chapter 4, it's in verse 7, it's clearly used as a metaphor for the body, as a container for the soul, as it were. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, it clearly refers to one's wife. Uh, Peter says that you should treat your wives um, as the weaker vessel. 
we've created. And so if both of those things are, are possible, I would be inclined, my, in my, this is my opinion, and there are, I, I could draw up a, a list of, of uh, eminent New Testament scholars who agree with me, and a list of eminent New Testament <laughs> scholars who disagree with me. In other words, the whole, it's, it's unknowable. Within this context, and in the wide context of Paul's teaching on the matter, the, the other place where he teaches on this very specific subject matter is 1 Corinthians, the Corinth, like uh, Thessalonica was a kind of sent in a big city, central gathering place, and was particularly, not, you know, as a port city, was notoriously sexually lax. Um, he deals with the same topic, and his solution to the problem of sexual lust is marriage. I would be inclined to go with the RSV translation rather than the ESV or NIV, saying that actually what he's saying, that sexual immorality, you abstain from sexual immorality, you don't sleep around or sleep with this thing or that thing or your slaves or whatever or prostitutes, that rather you have a wife, you take a wife, and you take a wife in holiness and honor. In other words, that you, you've been Christians, married Christians, and you treat each other as Christians, mm-hmm. so the body that you hold and the way that you live in your in your married life, in your sexual relations, is as one holy person with another holy person, as one, you know, treating with each other with honour, rather than just as a as a as a sort of um, a means to satisfying your lusts. So, because I've got, I, I think here I'm interpreting this maybe a bit differently. When it says, when we were talking about, um, you were saying the difference was take hold of your own body. Your own this says that. Uh, each one of you know how to do that. Mm. So, to me, that seems to imply... Um, you know when you're guilty. You know what you're... Yes. Yeah, mm. yeah, so it is, yeah it does say... You know how to do it. Mm. Yeah, it's, so, it's God's will that you abstain yes. from sexual immorality, that, that you know. Or I you put could, a different emphasis on it, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it could be translated as... Yeah, yeah so that each of you... This is that you abstain from sexual immorality... Immorality, it literally says to know each of you to take. Yes, that's the difference. To take. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could mean so. So it could mean so that that you know, please, you know, God wants you to know that this is what you are to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it could also mean that you know how to do it. Mm-hmm. But either way, it's, the end result is the same. Yeah. The God's will is that you know everybody marry. Uh, you either marry or remain chaste. And and you're chaste within marriage, which is so that you treat your spouse in holiness and honour, and not not in purity and lust. As it says in verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So this is not just, you know, that, to, to, to use modern terms, your sexuality, uh, that is to say your sexual desires are not your identity, it is an experience that you have and which must be brought under control, the control of the will of God. Whatever you desire is not who you are or what you therefore must be allowed to do. I mean, little pet peeve of mine, you, you hear this all the time. Um, people speak very carelessly uh, about these matters often. And I, I hear intelligent, articulate people saying things like um, that um, that... Um, 
say, in, uh, where was the World Football World Cup? Qatar. It's illegal to be homosexual. No, it's, yeah, yeah. it's not. There is not a country in the world where it's ever been illegal to be homosexual. Because you can't, you can't pass laws about what people desire. You can't make it illegal. In, you know, it's like saying, I make it illegal for people to like coffee. Well, tough, you can't. Are you either you like it or not, and there's nothing you could do, you're walking, you can't even tell whether I like it or not. Well, you can make it illegal to drink coffee. And likewise, you can make it illegal to uh, engage in homosexual sexual acts. You can't legalize or, or, or decriminalize homosexuality. Our desires are our desires. You know, you can't, you can't make it illegal to covet, but you can make it illegal to steal. And so we have all kinds of desires. And some people are born with sexual desires, you know, that they are uh, exclusively attracted to people of the same sex. Mm. There are other people who have really, really great difficulty <coughs> in being faithful. You know, they, they are not attracted to the same sex. They're just attracted to anything with a pulse. And, and some people are asexual. And some people have no mm. desire at all. And that's, that's fine. That's and, and for the, yes, mm. and for those people, chastity is really easy. You know, they don't desire, that's not a temptation no. that they desire, uh, that they, they experience. They will desire, you know, experience other temptations. But the point is that we are not in the passion of lust. The passion of lust is the, the word passion in, the, it specifically refers to being driven by your desires and exercising no reason or any self-control. We are being given, we are being given a spiritual self-control. So we control, you know, we take hold of even if you translate this how to control, you know, take hold of your, your own body, that you, that, you know, those, you, you hold it, it doesn't just fly around aimlessly, but you, 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 you take hold of it. So if you, if you understand it in that way. Mm. Because, because, yeah, yeah, the Gentiles who do not know God, so Gentiles here, um, because this is how the, um, this teaching wasn't unique to uh, the Christians, this was also Jewish teaching. So he's, widely. he's just talking to the Jews here, is he? No, he's talking to all, all those who've been baptized, whether they were of Jewish background or Gentile background, because in the wider society was a Gentile society yeah. and they did not have this teaching. Right. Mm. So they did not know God, and so they lived according to Whatever, you know, whatever the, yes. just like our, worship. like our society does not know God and therefore they, people do whatever they think is right even when it's not right. Um, so that's the first bit. And then the second bit is verse six, which also, <coughs> uh, is tricky to translate because ESV says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. That's the NIV. In this matter, no one should take. But it doesn't actually say in this matter. The word this doesn't occur in the original language. Mm. So in, it literally says in the matter, and, and it could actually mean something else. So this could mean that we don't wrong one another, and brother here means, just means fellow believer. That we don't wrong one another in this matter of sexual purity. But also it could equally well be translated, uh, if I, if I translate it in really, really bad English, that you don't wrong your brother in stuff. In other words, in things. In other words, in any matter. Rather than in this matter, because the word this doesn't occur. Um, and it seems to me that here, um, 
that that what that what he is dealing if if that is the case, which I I'm, I'm again tempted to say that it is. He's dealing with two things, which are things that he raises again and again in his other letters, which is that there is, on the one hand, there is uh, sexual immorality as being a kind of core sin against the body, and the other thing is 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 any form of uh, greed and taking advantage of one another and wronging one another in things, which in Colossians he, uh, you know, he says greed is idolatry. I've got a at the bottom here on that one that says. Uh, or defraud his brother in business. Yes, so it could be. So it's a wider. Yes, yes. So the the idea is um, uh, to transgress or harm. Mm-hmm. So in 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 the in stuff can also mean in in. I mean, Luther translates is in 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 trade. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So in dealings, you could say in dealings. It's, it's, a, it's a vague expression. It could mean a bit like, you know, wizard dealings. That's a vague word as well. So it could, it's actually said, so not to, neither sexual immorality nor any kind of fraud or, or defrauding or, or, um, or um, causing harm to the uh, livelihoods of one another. So there, those are the two, two kind of things because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. In other words, if you do that to one another, it's God you have to answer to. Because this is a matter of holiness. This is what belongs to God. Your life is not your own. Your brother's life is not his own. Or, and certainly not yours. To take advantage of. God is the God of all. We belong to him. This is what sanctification means. And we should become more and more in our conduct as those who belong to God as indeed we do God. And therefore, he says in verse 8, those, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, God, gives his Holy Spirit to you. We are sanctified, we are holy because we have been given the Holy Spirit. Um, so this is, this is really... Um, the key point here. And this is again, this is Paul who reminds, you know, said, when we came, you received our word as, as it is, the word of God. So they are speaking. So what we are telling you, this is God saying things, you get this one wrong and God is the one who's going to ask you the question. And he's an avenger. So if you defraud your brother, God will avenge your brother. Not, you know, he won't. And he says in Romans, much later on, you know, ten years later, Paul writes in the Romans, he says, you know, that, you know, that we shouldn't avenge ourselves. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But the vengeance, it's a, we shouldn't seek vengeance for ourselves, but God will. So if you are wronged, God will avenge you eventually. You may have to wait for it till the last judgment, but he will. But if you are the one who does wrong, God is the one who will wreck. Because of course we are brothers. We are, we are all belong to God's family. We are all members of God, you know, if, in God's, uh, of Christ, the body of Christ. You know, if the hand harms the leg, everybody suffers, including the hand. And it... So that's, that's, that's really the, those are the sort of key things, uh, in, in, in this kind of teaching. And these are all reminders. Warnings. These are the things, you know, warn. Do not be like this. And then from verse 9 onwards, 
comes the other side, which is these are the things you ought to do, mm-hmm. exhortation. And again, he's speaking to those who already know. He said, concerning brotherly love, we ha- you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And in fact, you, uh, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you to do this more and more. Which is exactly the same phrase that he used in verse 1. To do this more and more. More abundant can be overflowing. So brotherly love. What is, <coughs> what do we call it? Well, looking love. after each other and helping each other. Whatever is needed. Yeah. What did, what did Jesus say about this? Brotherly love? Very, very famous phrase of his. Yeah. You haven't, you, you're just not guessing what I'm asking about. Love your neighbor. We are brothers, we are members of the household mm. of God. It's all very well if you love yourself, though. <laughs> you don't like yourself very much. Liking and loving are very different things. Oh, well, if, you don't like you, if you don't like yourself very well, much, but you still have breakfast in the morning <laughs> and brush your teeth oh, in the evening, yeah. you, are, you love yourself. Yeah. Well, you're taking care of it. Yeah. But it yeah, is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's possible to love those things that you don't like. Oh, yes. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in fact, the Bible doesn't tell us to like one another. It tells us to love one another. Which means it goes, you know, you can even love your enemies. Which is to say that you, you act in a certain way rather than feel in a certain way. I think we are sometimes, in our, again, this is sort of, goes back really to the 19th century and the so-called romantic movement. You know, you think of, Shelley and, and those other cats that uh, sell a lot of books even today, um, we sometimes overemphasize feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a, a, a saying, <laughs> saying sometimes people use it to shoot down and say, I feel this. Facts don't care about your feelings. Mm-hmm. Things are what they are. You know, I feel that, you know, you said, I, I know that I was assigned male at birth, but I feel like a woman. So, well, facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> you know. Well, what you are, um, and sometimes we 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 are inclined sometimes to over-emphasize feelings. When it says love your neighbors itself, it's not talking about feelings. Feelings follow facts. You know, if, you know. If, let's say, let's take an example. If, if you have an arranged marriage, like a lot of cultures do, including a lot of Christian cultures, and did even in our society, even right, Charles had an arranged marriage. Yeah, lots of people, lots of, and and lot of people. Throughout history, I've had arranged marriages, and I think there's a case to be made for arranged marriages, because sometimes, especially when you're about young people, sometimes it is true that your mum and dad actually know better than you do. Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, you know, people fall for the wrong sort of person. But let's take an arranged marriage, where you might not know each other very well when you get married. The fact is that you're a husband and wife. Mm. If you then start acting on that fact and you treat the other person with the kind of love that is appropriate with their marriage, there's a really good chance that the feelings will eventually follow. Mm. I don't know how many of you know uh, Fiddle on the Roof, the yeah. musical. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm. One of my favourites. There's that song, um, Do You Love Me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I can see it now. Yeah, Do You Love Me? Mm. And her answer is, well, 25 years yeah, ago, you know, exactly. I, I, you know, you know, mm. I, you know, cooked your meals, I washed your clothes, all those. Mm. Said, yeah. mm. um, yes, but do you love me? Mm. And she goes, 
And at the, the conclusion is, um, doesn't change a thing. But after 25 years, it's nice to know. In other words, yes, I, I suppose I do love you. It doesn't make any difference, but it's nice to know. Um, and that's kind of, that's really, I think we, we ought to, we do ourselves and the world a great favor if we really emphasize what love as being a practical thing. And you treat each other with the dignity and the care that they deserve. Respect. And yeah, with respect and with honor. And when you do that, it's hard after a while to be really malicious. You know, if you, say, if you, if you spend your life helping somebody, after a while, it, it's just that much harder to be indifferent to them in your feelings and that much harder. What does that person, you know, what does, what does that person really need from me? And you just focus on their need rather than your feelings. Mm. Don't you care? <laughs> Four years later. <laughs> yeah. And in, in maybe, isn't it true though, if we've been married a long time, the question, do you still, are you still in love? It's like, who cares? <laughs> Oh, better. But the same thing goes for our, you know, Christian relations within the church. Mm. You know, you know, uh, do you feel really kind of strong, strong feelings of friendship towards other people? Oh, that's not really important. That's not really important. It's not even important amongst friends. What I was important amongst friends is what you actually do about it. And same with, uh, and the Christian family. The, 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 the church family. And it's hard. Because we are a completely ragtag bunch that have been thrown together by <laughs> nothing in common, hopefully, than our faith and the fact that we're members of Christ. You know, it's, a, it's a good thing that the church mm. is not a club of like-minded people, mm. but rather people of the same mm. faith. And that's a challenge, but it's also mm. an opportunity that we, do, we actually do this. It's a brotherly love. And what does that look like? It says in verse 11, uh, and I've got a couple of different translations. The ESV says to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Again, as we instructed you. Uh, your Bible, I think, says to use the word ambition. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life in verse 11. Is that right? I think it is. Chapter 4. Oh. Over there. The word that is translated as aspire or make your ambition is kind of considered mm. an honor. Mm. It's the kind of thing to pursue. Mm. So mm. to aspire, you're kind of like, this is my goal. What is my goal? To be famous, to be rich? No. To live quietly. What does yours say, Carol? So it refers to ambition or aspiration yeah. Yeah. or kind of thing, thing that you consider to an honor. Yeah. And this quiet life, it, it, it means to be quiet or to rest or to abstain from work. For example, the Sabbath rest is to lead a quiet. In other words, you don't make a big, you don't make, make a big noise and a big wave. You just, you, you, you get on with your life quietly without causing disturbance. Which is so, so different from the kind of uh, culture, culture in which we live where mm. we celebrate celebrity. Mm. You know, this is the thing, you know, these mm. people, you know, do, uh, fame and fortune and, yeah. and, you know, be, be radical, be different. No, mm. actually just blending into the crowd and just mm. being in nobody's way is actually a really, to be anonymous. Mm-hmm. Something to be said for that. Mind your own affairs. Be busy with your own life, not other people's. 
and work with your hands. We'll come back to that later in chapter 5, this whole business of work with your hands. In other words, no, don't be a sponger. <laughs> um, as we instructed you. And Paul, of course, Paul had to set an example because he went to Thessalonica. And he, mm. his, he learned his own living even though he was entitled mm. not to. So that, was Paul? What was his work? He was tent maker or made tent maker, tent and awnings and things like that. Oh, right. Yeah. So if you, if you have a if you have a market store, he'd be your man. Oh. Mm. Yeah. What, to what end? So that you may walk properly, we're back to this walking, mm-hmm. properly for outsiders and be dependent on no mm-hmm. one. And this properly is like with propriety, that's what it means. So Mine says that, so that you may command the respect of outsiders. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Same thing. Really. Yeah. I mean, it literally is just mm-hmm. to walk with propriety. Mm-hmm. Um, no, so the idea is that Christians live in such a way that they cause no scandal. Mm-hmm. In other words, that our lives adorn the gospel. So when people look at us, they might despise us, and they, they might think that we're bigots, mm-hmm. and you know, that we don't accept things that they accept. We, they might think that we're judgmental, and that we, we, we have rules about things they don't have rules about. But when they look at how you actually live, conduct yourselves, they can't find fault with that. You know, that they might, your colleagues at work might think that you've got unacceptable views, but nobody can, nobody can say anything other than that you're honest and hardworking. And that you don't gossip and slander. Mm-hmm. That even if your they don't agree with you, your life itself does bring scandal. Paul, right, when he writes to the Colossians, he says, you know, live lives worthy of our court. Mm-hmm. It's the, you know, the old thing, uh, you know, you know. What do you have to Oh, he did, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. But the idea is that when you put on your uniform, mm. then what you do in that uniform either mm. either brings honour to the uniform or shame to the mm. uniform. Mm. You know, if, if, if you put on the, I don't know, you put the Royal Navy uniform on and you go to town <laughs> and you get into a fight. Mm. Or you get drunk. <laughs> or you get drunk and, you know, you, you end up vomiting against the wall. Uh, mm. You are actually acting in a way that brings dishonour to their uniform and you will be dis reprimanded and disciplined oh, yeah. uh, even if you're doing it in your on your evening off mm. they're not allowed to go into town now with their uniforms are they no that, that's why they buy yeah and same with you know I, I've often told you you know about a school where I used to work where the school had a rule where if you if you behave you know, if you were yeah. school uniform even yeah. if it was on a Sunday afternoon if you smoked in town mm. in school uniform you got attention at school because you were wearing yeah. uniform mm. you represent yeah. the school yeah. and that kind of thing Mm. And likewise, we are, our uniform is our Holy Baptism, mm. in the name of Christ. And therefore we have to live in such a way that brings honour rather than dishonour to the name that we bear. But it's actually, in a sense, it's really achievable. Mm. Just get on with it. I don't mean achievable in the sense that we, we it's, it, because it's not talking about sin or sinlessness. No, it's no, it's, no, no. it's talking about the manner of life. You can do it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and you can do it. Mm. You know, if you are an ambitious person, you can be ambitious. If you are a, a dishonest person by nature, or you know, if you have difficulties with the truth, mm. just stick to the truth anyway, mm. and so on. And it's particularly the case because we live in a society also that really values uh, financial success. Mm. You know, a good job has become a phrase that means one that pays well, mm. and enrich, enriching yourself and, and, and financial prosperity are considered to be goals in life. And the Bible gives such a nobler and better goal in life, which is to live 
decently and, and with propriety before God and men and be satisfied with your lot rather than ambitious. Now, uh, it doesn't mean that you should turn down every promotion or not try to improve yourself, but rather these are not to be the goals of your life. These might be the attendant circumstances of your life. But the heart of it is, is to carry out your duties. And it might mean that you end up being an admiral <laughs> or a professor or the boss at your work. Or you might just mean that you continue to be the school cleaner or the cook or the whatever it is. Mm. That's not the point. It's not about, but it's rather saying this is, this is, the, what is the guardian principle? Make it your ambition to live quietly, not making waves, not getting, mind your own affairs mm. and be decent. And these things we can do. The sins of our heart and the foibles and, and, and faults of which we're guilty. That's the matter between us and God. And when we sin against one another, we have forgiveness. We live by grace. Part of brotherly love is that we forgive one another when one another fails, you know, when, uh, when, when things go wrong. Ask for forgiveness and we grant forgiveness. Because the next section, yeah. the start, as it runs into the next, into the fifth chapter mm. as well. Um, we've got five minutes left on the clock, so if, if anybody's got any, any further oh, yeah. reflections, uh, reflections on this, um, this, or any questions about any of the things that we've covered, the, uh, there's a bit of time for that. Um, and there's a whole thing, the whole question of sexuality and homosexuality and all those things. We, we had the, I, uh, did a Bible study series just before, um, mm. Christmas on that, yeah, which is, yeah. if you missed it, mm-hmm. Or would like to re- revisit it on on the church uh, website as well. This but has probably gone on ever since Adam and Eve, hasn't it? Of course it has. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, but also there are, you know, there there have been times when the um, God the God's word has had more or less influence over society mm-hmm. as a whole. So there was this, sort of, you know, there's a long period of time. Um, the biblical teaching was considered, at least on paper, to be true. Christian kings of, like, so the 16th century, they all had mistresses. And, they yeah, all, yeah. and, and they're, you know, they, well, many of them at least did. And, and, and they're, you know, it was often, as the saying goes, observed in the breach as much as the, as, uh, as anything else. But nevertheless, it was considered to be the thing, the standard to which Christians ought to aspire, and it was a standard to which many people were held, even if those who, with you know, very high power and influence, maybe were able to ride roughshod over it. And it is not at all controversial or difficult to see that the so-called sexual revolution of the last half century or more now has been really, really bad for. Vulnerable. Mm-hmm. These, 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 these norms, the Christian norms mm-hmm. that the Bible establishes, are there particularly for, for the protection of the weak and the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that means women and children. Because men are, men are, men are stronger, mm-hmm. men are faster, um, men are physically far more capable of taking care of themselves. You know, if, if a man sleeps with a woman, he can sleep with her and walk off and never see her again and have suffered no consequences. Mm. 
she might be she might end up with a child and that's mm. the rest of her life. Mm. And children need fathers and mothers. Mm. Mothers need fathers' protection. I mean, as you know, I'm, 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 I'm telling you things that you know at least as well as I do. Mm. You know, when a mother gives birth to a child, when a mother is pregnant mm. or gives birth to a child, a, a baby, mm. she and the child are both incredibly vulnerable mm. and need protection and mm. need care. And the moment that that protection and care disappears, mm-hmm. we are talking about nothing other than exploitation. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons why we have such a strong and powerful state these days is that, the, in, in many ways, the job of fathers has been given over to the state. So you've got, you've got mothers uh, with children where the fathers aren't there to provide for them, so we mm-hmm. have to have a system that looks after them mm-hmm. because the fathers aren't doing their jobs. And this is, and, and the sexual revolution which, which, you know, puts so much, has normalized things like promiscuity. You will find, if you do, a, I mean, this, studies have been done, if you take a random selection of a thousand men and a random selection of a thousand women, and you say, what do you actually want in a relationship? The number of women who actually just quite happily sleep around with anybody, anything is very, very small. Mm-hmm. Most women don't want that. Mm-hmm. Whereas men, lots more men are quite happy with that. <laughs> And the whole system has been skewed in favour of promiscuous women, men who take advantage of women. Mm-hmm. And so there are women who, who feel that this is what you have to do in order to get a man, mm-hmm. but they don't like it. And then there's you put on top of that the pornography, which gives men and women really, really bizarre ideas of what sexual relations are supposed to look like. You know, this exploitative, violent stuff that that happens. I'm sure that one reason why there are so many girls who they say they'd rather be a boy, thank you very much, oh, is that they've seen what you're supposed to, you know, what you're supposed to be putting up with when you, when you have sex with, with men. They say, well, I don't want any of that, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I'd rather be a boy if that's what. So all of this teaching, which the world thinks that we are you know, straight-laced and don't know how to have fun, is actually there for everybody's protection. Mm-hmm. We're protected from each other and from ourselves. Mm-hmm. Terrible time to be growing up. Especially when you've got uh, a corrupt metropolitan police force. That doesn't help. No, it doesn't help. But um, I I read a book recently, uh, written last year, last summer. I read a book written by a an unbelieving feminist, young Mm. young woman, Mm. and basically she's bemoaning the sexual revolution, making case against sexual revolution based Mm. not on Christian teaching, but just based on basic needs of women and children, particularly. And do you know what her what her, is it, you know, there is a, the conclusion was that there is this technology that humanity has developed to protect us against all these abuses. Mm. That is, it's imperfect. It's quite tricky to handle day to day, but it works. It's called marriage. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. That you don't sleep around, you get married, and you stay married. Mm. And that's a dying, dying thing. It is. It? The harm is everywhere to be seen. And we need yeah. to be rediscovering the society needs to rediscover it mm. for the sake of because we're go we're going back to the world in mm, which yeah. New Testament was written where there's exploitation. Mm. People are taking advantage of. Because the moment you break down these rules, it's the powerful mm. and the unscrupulous who get their way. You know, if, if you break down rules and if you don't have rules about financial transactions, who gets their <laughs> way? It's the rich and the dishonest mm. and the powerful. And it's the same with in sexual relations as well. If you don't have clear boundaries in place, 
it's the powerful, the strong, and the unscrupulous who get their way. So you get these kind of, you, know, you get the, the, you know, these police who have been in the news. When mm. it comes to the, you know, who, they have the power, they mm. have the opportunity, mm. and there's no one to stop them. So they mm. will do their terrible things. Mm. So we need these, you know, we need the feds. G.K. Chesterton was a, a, a writer about 100 years ago, a Christian writer, and he, he said that you should never remove a fence before you find out why it was put after there in the first mm-hmm. place. You come across a fence, you don't know what it's there for. Leave it alone until you discover why it was there. Yeah. Um, that's something that's been forgotten. Yeah. Our God is good and he's wise. Mm. He tells us, don't do that. He's trying to protect us from ourselves or somebody else from us. <laughs> yeah. Right. Stop there. Yeah. And the next week, something entirely different. Uh, when he changes the subject to things to come, to the resurrection. Mm. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love and your wisdom, which you have uh, communicated to us in your word. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who has sanctified us and made us here. We pray that your spirit would work in our lives, that we would grow more and more in holiness in our lives as we are holy in Jesus, that our lives would be in harmony with our faith, that our life would also be, uh, would adorn rather than contradict the gospel. And that we would learn increasingly to live in love with you and with one another. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. Amen.